Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 10, an Old Testament survey from Abraham to modern Israel. Well, as we begin the 10th week in our Old Testament biblical survey that began with the patriarch Abraham, last week we arrived at the time of Christ, meaning we've covered in those 10 weeks something close to 2,000 years of Bible history. We still have quite a ways to go. And today we'll begin at the time shortly after Yeshua's death and resurrection. Well, Rome is the world power. It is the fourth Gentile world power as depicted by those legs of iron in uh, Daniel's dream statue. The Holy Lands were now divided up into several Roman provinces, three of them the most important to our study, those being Judea, Samaria, and the Galilee. Now, how Judaism took form and was practiced varied among those three provinces. Since Jerusalem, which was the power center of all things Jewish, was in Judea, then naturally those religious leaders and would-be leaders that sought power established themselves in Jerusalem. That meant that a much more formal and a strict Judaism was the norm, with the hundreds of rabbis and priests each pressing for their own doctrinal agendas to be the standard. Now Galilee, up north, was religious and it was loyal to Judaism. But since they were in farming country, and they were far away from the influence of the Jewish religious elite, theirs was a more relaxed and a much more practical Judaism that focused on the family. Samaria, however, well, they were a problem child. It had many Jews living there, but only some of them were loyal to the Jerusalem temple and to a Jerusalem-defined Judaism. Because Samaria was a mixture of Greek cities and Jewish villages, and because historically Samaria had been emptied of Israelites by the Assyrians some 1,200 years earlier, then resettled with foreigners from other nations, Samaria had become a multicultural population. Many different gods were worshipped there. And a more tolerant attitude to these kinds of matters was prevalent. To accommodate this from a religious standpoint, a powerful group of Jewish religious elite broke away from the Jerusalem temple and they created a new temple in Samaria. Of course, they set up their own separate priesthood. A different version of the Torah was created. This is what has come to be known as the Sumerian Pentateuch. There are around 6,000 instances where the Sumerian Pentateuch differs from the Torah as we know it today. 
Further, the Sumerian priesthood recognized only the five books of Moses as valid. And therefore, while they celebrated the seven biblical feasts of the Torah, they refused to acknowledge such things as Purim and even Hanukkah, since they weren't in the books of Moses. As most Christians eventually come to to recognize, people become so beholden to their own particular denomination that we tend to throw mud at all the other ones over the minutest differences. But sometimes when there is a substantial and violent break between the existing religious authority and a new upstart, the differences are far more than cosmetic and the result can be downright hatred. Sadly, we've seen much too much of this kind of dynamic between Catholicism and the many Protestant branches of the church. But it does provide us with a pretty good illustration of just how wide that gulf was between the Jews of Samaria and those of Judea and the Galilee. Bottom line, we must grasp as we read especially the New Testament, there was not one Judaism in the land. There was not one universal doctrine that all Jews adhered to. There was not one set of Jewish traditions that all Jews followed. There was not even only one temple. Not even just one Torah anymore. And this doesn't even take into account the diaspora Jews like Paul, who were born and lived outside of the Holy Lands. And the Diaspora Jews represented 95% of all living Jews. Jews from the Holy Lands, Judea, Galilee, and the Samaria, were a distinct minority in Judaism. The Diaspora Jews that Paul and Peter and other disciples would go to in order to evangelize practiced several different variations of Judaism. So when we read the New Testament, we must take into account who was speaking, who was listening. At times it was a mixed group. And where they were located. The everyday Jews of 1900 years ago were well aware of the many Jewish societal and religious variations that existed. So they understood the words of what eventually came to become the Gospels and the Epistles in that context, the context of so many differences. But for Gentiles, especially for Western believers of the 21st century, it can be quite confusing. And we can come to some inappropriate conclusions that would have left the Jews of Paul's day with their mouths gaping open in shock and in in surprise. See, our goal should always be to ascertain the writer's intent based on the framework of his day. Then, once understood, we should adapt that understanding to our modern times and cultures. Therefore, the primary aim of Yeshua's Talmudim, his disciples, was naturally to persuade their fellow Jews of all the many factions of Judaism that Yeshua was the Messiah they'd been waiting for. 
concerning the spreading of the good news, Yeshua himself said, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. And the disciples took that commandment quite literally, because it was literal. Mashiach, from which we get the word Messiah, means anointed one. The anointed one of the Torah and the prophets, the one that they'd always pointed to. Yeshua was to be the perfection of Jewish history and faith. He was not to be the head of a new or separate religion. But he was also the savior of the world. And it became Shaul's, Paul's, primary mission to bring the good news to the Gentiles and to the God-fearers. Although Peter and others went to the Gentiles as well. Now God-fearers, who were God-fearers? God-fearers were Gentiles who had accepted the Jewish ways and their God, but they were not formally converted to Judaism through a circumcision ceremony. And since rabbis reveled in micromanaging every minute detail of life, and since rabbis often disagreed with one another, exactly who was a Jew and who wasn't could be a constant source of debate. One could be a Jew by genealogy, but even that could be challenged as there had been a lot of mixing of the cultures and races by now. One could become a Jew by going through the circumcision ceremony, but with no certain Jewish heritage at all. The Gospel writer Luke was probably a God-fearer, therefore not considered to be a Jew. Gentiles were defined as anybody not Jewish. Those who were not descendants of Yaakov, Jacob. Gentiles worshipped multitudes of gods. They had no understanding of Judaism or, of course, the history of Israel. Now, Paul, who took the gospel to the Gentiles, found himself speaking to thousands of Jews as well. Because Messianic Jews were the leaders of the new so-called churches located in the various colonies throughout the Roman Empire. Now remember, virtually every new church that originated was nothing more than a Jewish synagogue whose members came to believe in Yeshua as the Messiah. The advent and use of the word church came long after this era. And it was intended to indicate a Gentile Christian house of worship separate and apart from synagogues of Messianic Jews. The word in in the oldest scriptures found to date that is almost always translated into church is uh, in Christian Bibles is the Greek word ecclesia. And ecclesia is a rather generic word. It just means a gathering or an assembly. Now, naturally, these Messianic Jews who attended believing synagogues still considered themselves as Jews. And so, they continued practicing the religion of the Jews, Judaism, with Christ added to the mix. But Jews weren't going to be Paul's focus. Now, from the beginning of the Jesus movement, the Messianic Jews had believed that in order 
to accept the Jewish Messiah, one first had to be or become a Jew. That seems pretty logical. Why would a Gentile have need for a Jewish Savior? That was the mindset. The entire concept of a Messiah who pays the price for mankind's sins and paves the way to a restored relationship with the God of Israel is uniquely Jewish. Or more accurately, uniquely Hebrew. Now see, this fact can't be stated strongly enough. Gentiles, that is the entire world population other than for Jews, had no understanding of sin and redemption. However, for 1400 years, the Jews had been schooled and prepared for a coming Messiah. God had given them the Torah at Mount Sinai through Moses to explain it. Now Paul had a most difficult mission. He not only had to explain the need for a savior to an uninitiated Gentile population that had been raised under a system of Greek gods and goddesses, but he had also had to carefully and eloquently and repeatedly break the news to Jewish believers that Yeshua was not for them alone. The mere thought that the Jewish Messiah was also for the Gentiles, that was an absolute abomination to traditional Judaism. I mean, how could this be? I mean, had the Jewish people not spent generations separating themselves from these same pagans at God's command? Had they not scrupulously followed the letter of the law? Had Yehovah not promised to send them a deliverer to rescue them from who? The Gentiles! Currently represented by their brutal Roman oppressors. I mean, wasn't it the Jewish people who were called God's precious treasure and His chosen? And this from the mouths of God's own prophets. As often as not, Paul was run out of the Jewish colonies he visited for speaking this blasphemy. But as the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit, worked in the hearts of Jewish believers, their resistance to the concept of Gentiles being included without first becoming Jews weakened. Shaul, Paul, he then began to preach that the Gentile convert shouldn't have to follow the strict laws of Judaism, nor should they need to be circumcised. This brought on a new round of objections, in which an accommodation was reached at a crucial meeting in Jerusalem in 49 AD. It was this meeting that paved the way for an avalanche of Gentiles to become followers of Jesus. Well, just as Jerusalem was the power center of traditional Judaism, so it was for Messianic Judaism their center. Paul convinced James, Yeshua's brother, who was the elder and the leader of the Messianic movement in Jerusalem, to give him an audience 
Paul also convinced the Messianic Jewish leadership to at least relent on the matter of circumcision for Gentiles who wished to just join the Messianic synagogues. Now I want to comment on something here. And it is that James' name was not James. It was Yaakov. It was Jacob. You know why we call him James? Because the writers of the King James version of the Bible wanted to give special honor to England's King James. So they literally changed Jesus' brother's name to James. That's how we have it. Now Jews see this series of decisions at this council made by the Messianic Jewish leadership in Jerusalem regarding the inclusion of Gentiles as one of the defining moments in their history. When Messianic Judaism, since a handful of Gentiles were now involved, we could, for the sake of just easier communication among us, call it the church, went one way and traditional or orthodox Judaism the other. You see, the crux of the matter was this very serious issue of ritual purity. And even within the various often opposing views of the many rabbinical leaders, there was one belief that they certainly held in common, and it was Gentiles are unclean. And contact with them caused a Jew to become unclean. In Acts 15 is recorded the watershed decisions of the Jerusalem Council that infuriated traditional Jews and has been generally misinterpreted by the Gentile church. The issue was that Gentile believers in Christ wanted to worship with the Messianic Jews in their synagogues. This meant they needed to come into a synagogue in order to join in the rituals and the feasts and partake of the worship practices, even partake of food from time to time with Messianic Jews. Centuries of the Jews intentionally avoiding contact with Gentiles had therefore created a substantial cultural problem. Typically, the Jewish solution was for these Gentile believers to become Jewish. Now, of course, many Gentiles balked at this notion. And Paul was the, among the first to recognize that as a result of Christ's advent, a new dynamic was now in place. And this prohibition of Jews dealing with Gentiles had to be revisited. But what to do? The reality is that there is no scriptural prohibition against Jews having contact with Gentiles. And it was only Jewish tradition that declared Gentiles unclean. The long and the short of it is, the Jerusalem Council, that we read in the book of Acts, decided that if Gentiles would do the following four things then the matter of ritual purity could be satisfied. And as far as Messianic Jews were concerned, that would be the case. The first thing is, Gentiles were to forsake fornication. That is, they were to adopt the Torah views of sexual morality and drop the immoral Roman attitudes on sex. Second, they were to abstain from things sacrificed 
to pagan idols. Now, this was more than just not eating animals that had been given to the gods. The various pagan religions that these new Gentile believers were coming out of sacrificed everything from wooden representations of people to animals to various valuable gifts to their own children. The foundational idea here was to stop idol worship and anything associated with it. Third, they were to abstain from blood. See, this is an ancient Jewish idiom, blood, that refers to murder. We commonly say the shedding of blood, um, even when referring to murder. The idea is they were not to kill another human being. Now, it probably also referred to the practice of drinking or eating blood, another common pagan practice forbidden by the Jews. But no doubt what this meant, all Torah laws pertaining to blood were to be followed. And fourth, they could not eat the meat of animals that had been strangled. This was due to the Jewish belief that an animal used for food and sacrifice was to be killed quickly and as humanely as possible. Strangulation was considered inhumane. The other part of this is that it was a God-ordained law that said an animal should be drained of its blood before being eaten. This was due to God's instruction that life was in the blood, which goes back to Adam and Eve. Well, today, most church denominations have taken these four rulings to mean that Gentiles are now released from all Old Testament commandments. Now, that's completely out of context. It ignores the cultural setting and the purpose for these rulings and couldn't be further from the truth. I mean, this was simply a matter of finding a solution to solve the issues of ritual purity. It was a matter of finding a way for Gentile believers and Jewish believers to worship with one another in synagogues. Of course, these rulings caused as much or more trouble than they were intended to eliminate. And it resulted in Messianic Jews having a great falling out with the non-believing traditional and Orthodox Jews. Later on, in the Jewish rebellions against the Romans of 67 AD and then still later 131 AD, the Messianic Jews refused to participate in the fight against the Romans. And this cemented a wall of separation between the Messianic Jews and all other sects of Judaism. Well, in about 50 A.D., while Yeshua's disciples were hard at work spreading the gospel, among the most zealous Orthodox Jews arose a secretive vigilante group. It was called the Sicarii. The Sicarii were the most radical and militant faction of the extremist movement called the Zealots. The historian Josephus, in his famous work, Jewish Antiquities, describes the origination of the Zealots as occurring around the same time as Christ's birth, and it was founded by a Pharisee named Zadok. The philosophy of the Zealots was that they ranked freedom as a religious matter of the highest order. 
and thus rebellion against Rome was to them holy war and thus totally in line with God's will. Their numbers grew to a point that by this time, around 50 AD, they had become the fourth mainstream sect of Judaism behind the Pharisees and the Sadducees, but ahead of the essence in numbers of adherents. The only evidence that would imply that the Sakari faction was even active prior to the time of Jesus' death, ironically, comes in the surname contributed to the disciple that betrayed him, Judas Iscariot. See, Iscariot seems to be a a play on the Greek word for Sakari, which is Sakarius, rather than a a typical familial, uh, it was not a familial name. It wasn't the name of a family. And this brings many Bible scholars to the conclusion that in modern English, we should simply translate Judas Iscariot instead to Judas the Sakari. Because certainly the biblical accounts of Judas' actions and words were those of a, a pretty extreme radical. Well, led by Menachem and Eleazar ben Yair, the Sakari were said to have operated primarily in the Galilee. The Zealots' center of activity was in Jerusalem. And although the Zealots tended to incite riots, the Sakari were just out-and-out assassins. Violent terrorists who targeted Jews who worshipped Jesus. But also Hellenists who tried to pervert Judaism or Gentile pagans, or any person or any group who felt, who they felt were Roman sympathizers. I mean, Osama bin Laden and Al-Qaeda in our day would not be a bad illustration of the ideals and methods of the Sakari. Pretty apt, really. So, while the Messianic Jews roamed the land, seeking more converts and further upsetting the traditional Orthodox Jews... The traditional Jews, spurred on by the zealots, inspired rebellion against Rome, and the Sakari vowed death to those Jews or Gentiles that followed Yeshua or Rome. What a mess! Roman rule, though, was stretched very thin now over their vast empire. So their control over an explosive Judea was dissolving into chaos. Pretty soon Nero would become the emperor of Rome and the powder keg that was Judea got its spark. It's about this time that we hear of the Christian persecutions within the Roman Empire. Now while we should not minimize this at all, the picture that we have this era is of Gentile Christians being killed for their profession of faith in Jesus. True enough. However, these persecutions were actually an anti-Jewish movement in the empire. At the time of Nero, so-called Christianity was viewed by the Romans as just another fanatic Jewish sect as it still consisted in the majority of Jews. Gentiles becoming converts to Judaism was nothing new and was to a degree commonplace. 
So the average Roman citizen and the Roman leadership identified Gentiles who believed in Christ with Judaism. Well, in 66 AD in Caesarea Philippi, a Greek city in the northern Galilee, an unidentified man, presumably a pagan, walked to the front of the town temple. Now, this was a Greek temple to a Greek god. And he began sacrificing birds to mock the Orthodox, Orthodox Jews who were living there. Worse, it was on Shabbat, the Sabbath. The city's Jews were greatly affronted. Riots rapidly escalated into open street warfare. The news quickly reached Jerusalem. And rioting in sympathy with their Galilean brothers started there as well. And what can only be described as bad timing, the local Roman governor decided at that moment to brazenly rob Herod's temple of a sizable amount of silver and gold, supposedly taking it as tribute that was owed to Rome. The local Jewish population knew that was a lie, and they swarmed into the streets hurling insults at the governor. Well, not one to be mocked by peasants, the governor ordered the Roman troops to confront the mobs, and a bloodbath ensued. The governor fled. Well, some 30 miles south of Jerusalem, near the southeastern shore of the Dead Sea, arose the mountaintop fortress of Masada. Taken many of you there. Herod the Great has been credited with building a lavish palace atop this thousand foot high plateau. However, more correctly, he rebuilt and enlarged some facilities that had existed there for several hundred years. Nonetheless, while it was a favorite getaway spot for, for Herod, the grandiose Masada complex came to symbolize the ruthlessness and decadence of his rulership and the unbearable oppression of Rome upon the Jewish people. A large group of Jewish protesters killed the Roman garrison there in a surprise attack and they took over the grounds of Masada. In Jerusalem and in other cities throughout Judea, Jews refused to pay the temple sacrifice, taxes, in essence, to Rome. This was war. All throughout the Roman Empire, within its hundreds of Jewish colonies, riots and killings broke out. Nero, who was already in hot water, from the suspicion that it was he and not Christians, actually it was Messianic Jews who were being blamed, that it was he that was responsible for these devastating fires that had burned down nearly a quarter of Rome. They took action. In 67 AD, Nero sent his best general to the Galilee and he took back control of that region. Now, Jerusalem, much farther to the south in, in Judea, was spared, at least for the moment. The demented Nero hated by Jews and Romans alike, then committed suicide, and then Rome experienced several months of chaos, while Jerusalem won a short reprieve from the inevitable. Well, in 69 AD, Vespasian became emperor of Rome, and he sent his son, Titus, to take back Jerusalem from the Jewish rebels. Jerusalem's thick Limestone walls were breached after nine months of siege by the Roman legions and the temple was seized by Titus. Now Titus, although a great general, a fierce warrior, he was no barbarian. 
after several months of siege and with overwhelming victory, obvious and at hand, Titus called a halt to the attack and then he pled personally with the inhabitants to surrender, to stop this useless carnage. They greeted him with a hail of stones and insults. He then sent forward one of the Jews' own, hoping maybe this man could win their trust. This man's name was Josephus. Now Josephus, the man we know as the Roman historian of Christ's area, was actually Joseph ben Metatias, a Jew by birth. He was schooled by both Pharisees and Sadducees, and very he was very familiar with the essence. He had been a commander of the Jewish rebel forces up in the Galilee, you see. But he was captured. And he gave his loyalty to Rome to save his own life. Now he stood before his people and he begged them, put down the weapons, submit, and your trial will be over. The Jews were determined to fight for the holy city to the death, and they did. By the time the Romans gained full control of Jerusalem, scores of thousands of Jews had died of starvation and disease during the siege. However, thousands of Messianic Jews escaped this war as they remembered Yeshua's prophetic instructions to flee when they saw the enemy armies approach the holy city. They may not have realized that this prophecy was actually for a time far into the future, but it sure seemed to fit the occasion. In Matthew 24, verses 15 through 21, we read this. These words of Christ. So when you see the abomination that causes devastation spoken about through the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand the illusion, that will be the time for those in Judah to escape to the hills. If someone's on the roof, he must not go down to gather his belongings from his house. If someone's in the field, he must not turn back to get his coat. What a terrible time it will be for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that you don't have to escape in the in winter or on Shabbat. For there will be trouble then worse than there has ever been from the beginning of the world until now. There will be nothing like it again. Well, since these prophetic words of Christ certainly didn't exist in the Tanakh, the Old Testament, and hadn't been predicted by rabbis or by priests, but rather a man, Yeshua, they considered that man, by the way, blasphemous and a phony, then the traditional Jews regarded the Messianic Jews leaving to escape the siege as treason. Titus sent the temple afire. They leveled it stone by stone. The last stronghold and symbol of the Jewish rebellion, the desert mountain plateau of Masada, was taken back by the Romans three years later. And by the way, the story of Masada is not mentioned in the Bible. We only have this information from extra-biblical Jewish and Roman sources. Well, after months of building a massive earthen ramp up the west side of this thousand-foot-high mountain in order to attack the fortress, the Romans entered to find nothing but the dead bodies of men, women, and children. The Jewish rebels that had taken Masada were led by the radical Sakari sect. Eleazar ben Yair, 
the sect's sole remaining leader, led nearly 1,000 people into death by suicide rather than being taken by Rome. What happened at Masada is not entirely clear. Roman annals tell of their soldiers' horror at finding the lifeless bodies lying in pools of their own blood. There are legends that five or six of the rebels hid and survived, later telling the story of how this mass suicide and infanticide was carried out. But there is no known actual written record attesting to the sad affair. Be that as it may, the Jewish rebellion was over. The Sanhedrin was abolished. The priesthood was dismantled. The Sadukim, the Sadducees, disappeared. Judea, all that was left now of ancient Israel, ceased to exist as the home to the Jews. The Israelites had lost their homeland. And it was going to be that way for the next 1900 years. Well, of the 250,000 Jews that huddled inside Jerusalem's walls at the beginning of the siege, only 80,000 remained alive. Those who could walk left. Tens of thousands were taken as Roman slaves. The city was unlivable. And the shock of these events would resound in the hearts of Jews for years to come. Many believed they had just witnessed the apocalypse. Others ran for their lives, hid in caves, and they just waited for the world to come to an end. Priests and rabbis, well, they remained quiet. Only the most docile of the parushim, the Pharisees, were left. People had not given up their Judaism, but they did go underground, meeting quietly in homes scattered in the countless villages throughout the region, and the local economy no longer functioned. But in the small Judean town of Yavne, several rabbis and scribes and priests and other learned men found common comfort in resuming study with what few Torah scrolls and writings they were able to salvage. Their informal leader, Rabban Yochanan ben Zakkai, a very prominent rabbi, led meetings in which the canon, that is, the books that comprise the Old Testament, were put into the form that we all read today. After a while, the religious leaders of Yavne became the substitute for the now defunct Sanhedrin Scribes and rabbis from Yavne started traveling around the land, teaching, founding even Jewish religious schools. They eventually set themselves up as the new Jewish religious authority that could interpret scripture and judge religious matters. Their descendants would rule Jewish life for the next 400 years. Now, Messianic Jews, followers of Yeshua, remained as outlaws of Judaism. All contact with them was forbidden by the rabbis. And once again, as in the days of the Babylonian exile, when the temple was demolished, sacrificing was impossible. So once again, the ultimate Jewish endeavor became Torah study. The men who ruled and taught were given the title of rabbi. They were usually unpaid for their work. Most of them earned a living by performing some craft or another. Well, in 115 AD, the Jews organized and and fought a very short-lived and unsuccessful rebellion. Then Hadrian became 
Empire of Rome in 117 AD and he sought to unite the current multicultural Roman Empire under a single dominant culture, Greek culture. And after a few years he realized his primary foe was going to be these large numbers of Jews scattered throughout the empire that held on so tightly to their traditions. In 131 AD, Hadrian outlawed circumcision. He forbade the reading of the Torah, the observance of Shabbat, of the Jewish festivals, the ordaining of rabbis, or the teaching of Jewish law. As the coup de grace, he changed the name of the former land of Judea and Israel to Palestine. Jerusalem was renamed Aelina Capitolina. Aelia Capitolina. And he placed a shrine to Jupiter in the ruins of the temple. In response, the second Jewish rebellion began in 132 AD. Now, Palestine, you see, is Greek for Philistine. Perhaps the greatest enemy of Israel's past. I mean, what irony that the Palestinians of today, the Philistines, as led by Yasser Arafat and now other leaders, have re-emerged as Israel's greatest present-day enemy. Hadrian well knew the historical hatred that existed between Israel and Philistia, what it represented to them. So he sought to insult, to demoralize the Jews to the greatest degree possible by renaming their homeland Palestine, Philistia. Shimon Bar Kokhba holds the exalted place as the leader of this new rebellion. And unlike the rebellion of a few decades few decades earlier, this one was well organized and the Romans suffered many defeats. In retribution, hundreds of Jewish leaders and scholars were rounded up, arrested, tortured, and killed. And as the war rolled on, the methods of execution by the Romans became more gruesome in hopes of discouraging the rebels. Well, many influential rabbis held up Shimon Bar Kokhba as the Messiah of God they had been waiting for. The majority of Jews seemed to accept this. Of course, the Messianic Jews didn't agree. They knew Yeshua was the Messiah. The result was the Messianic Jews refused to participate with their Orthodox brothers in this new rebellion against Rome. This was the end, then, of any attempt at unity or cooperation between the two Jewish groups and they've remained hostile to one another to this day although not necessarily for the same reasons well after about two years of intense and costly warfare the frustrated Romans turned from standard battle strategy and they began a campaign of terror by mounting an all out manhunt for Jewish rebels. Now a large part of the Jewish population of Palestine, it was now called, was slaughtered simply for being Jewish. Roman archives report that about a thousand Jewish villages were leveled. Almost 600,000 Jews were executed. 
This atrocity left the Jews as the minority population in what was formerly their own land. In time, however, <coughs> the rabbis re-established contact with one another and they secretly met to reform the Sanhedrin. Palestine, as it was now called, was impoverished. From about 200 to about 235 AD, the area did begin to recover economically. Rabbi Judah the Prince worked with others to compile a massive collection of Jewish oral law and tradition into a finished document that would come to be called the Mishnah. Now the Mishnah is a very key part of Jewish religious training and authority and it was published in a most interesting way. Rather than it being written down in order for distribution, as was now the norm, instead it was at first put to memory by students who had a special gift of memorization. Sections of the Mishnah were assigned to different groups and the memorizer, called a Tanah, would then learn it and recite it until a rabbi was satisfied it was perfect. Then he'd pass it on to another and so on and so on. The Mishnah was handed down for decades in this manner. Well, in a turn of events that could only be termed, uh, termed as uh, ironic, in 313 AD, the latest emperor of Rome, Constantine, he declared Christianity the new religion of the realm and Orthodox Judaism outlawed as a sect. Even Messianic Jews were deprived from participating in the worship of their own Messiah, Yeshua, unless they gave up their Judaism and their Jewishness. The cross became the symbol of the new Rome-based religion, a religion exclusively of and for Gentiles. By 425 AD, religious Jewish authorities and the Sanhedrin had once again disintegrated. Judaism, for the most part, became an underground religion. I think it's important to paint a very clear portrait of the state of affairs for Jews at this time in history. The kingdom of Israel, Ephraim Israel, had ceased to exist 1,200 years earlier. The people of those ten tribes of the northern kingdom of Ephraim Israel were now, with some notable exceptions, absorbed by dozens of other cultures, all Gentile, of course. It would become impossible for most of those ten Israelite tribes to face their, or rather, to trace their family history back to Avraham. Their Hebrew genes had become mixed and fused with the Gentile world. Now, for former Judeans, those of the tribe of Judah, and properly called Jews, that represents a different scenario. Jews being the former residents of the southern kingdom of Yehuda, Judah, also called Judea, consisted nearly exclusively of two tribes, Judah and Benjamin. It would be fair to add the Levites to those called Jews as well, but amongst themselves, modern-day Hebrews usually make a distinction between Jews and Levites. And as had happened all throughout Israelite history, some insignificant number of Israelite tribal members moved to other tribal districts and they became absorbed into their new tribes, but this in no way ended distinct tribal affiliations. But the Jews, they suffered a different fate. 
they were most certainly dispersed on more than one occasion. But generally speaking, they weren't absorbed by the Gentile cultures they lived among. Instead, Jews tended to live in hundreds of widely scattered Jewish colonies and boroughs and ghettos, and they clung to their families and their tradition and to the worship of the God of Israel, and they cherished their Jewish culture. They remain to this day completely identifiable as Jews. Well, beginning in the early 4th century AD, under the direction of the Christian convert Constantine, Jews were slowly and surely relegated to second-class citizenship in the empire. Constantine first ordered that no marriage was permitted between Jewish men and Christian women, and then later decreed no marriage whatsoever between Jew and Christian. Next, Jews were denied the ownership of slaves. Now, while the use of slaves is despicable to us, it was essential for prosperity in the pre-medieval economies. Thus, Jews were put at a terrible economic disadvantage. Well, I'm running out of breath. (laughs) Next week, we'll begin to explore how the Jews survived, sometimes thrived in their new reality of yet another exile.